The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them 
is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we have been continuing in the season of Epiphany, and we have been looking at the miracles of Jesus Christ. And now in our readings in Epiphany, we now turn from the miracles to a few sections that describe the nature of Christ's teaching. And so Jesus has not only been displayed as the Son of God incarnate, who is working powerful signs and wonders to prove the claims of his divinity and the authenticity of his gospel, now he begins to teach clearly. We saw last week that all of this was done in the context of fulfilling the great promises which were given by God through the Exodus that Moses was selected by God to be the one who redeems a people. And after Moses leads the people out of Egypt, after God wrought 10 plagues against that nation, God then brings his people to a mountain where he gives them 10 words. And the 10 plagues and the 10 words connection cannot be missed. God is saying something. He's delivering Israel out of a land of bondage, and he's bringing them to a land uh, that is flowing with milk and honey. And in the process, he gives them 10 words or 10 commandments to, to obey, to keep, in order that they might live long in the land. And so last week we saw that Jesus, in what he does in this sermon that is on a part of a plain on the mountain, Jesus is fulfilling all that Moses pointed to in symbol and in allegory and metaphor. Jesus here has brought his disciples up onto the mountain. If you remember, if you were there on Thursday night, the the movie emphasized, and we saw last week as well, that the people of Israel could not touch the mountain. But here in this passage in Luke, Luke is very careful to record that Jesus has called his disciples up onto the mountain. And not only to the, the disciples, but people from all of the surrounding cities. Jesus is the one who brings the people of God to God. And therefore, just as Moses has delivered the law from Mount Sinai and again at Mount Ebal, as we saw last week, Christ now is unfolding the great commandment to love one's neighbor and to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's unfolding that commandment and applying it. It is like Jesus is doing another giving of the law. Not that he is changing the law, but he is teaching his people all that the law signified, all that the law intended to say. God's people here do not often recognize the serious nature of Christian obedience. Why is this passage relevant to us today? It is because all of life, generosity, relationships, family, jobs, culture, clothing, art, all of life, is to be lived in obedience to God. There is no part of life that Christ does not say a word about. We often fail to see the radical impossibility of accomplishing these commands in ourselves. So if we do recognize that Christ has an authoritative word to speak about all of life, we then make an error. It is possible for us to err in another way by saying, okay, let's try to obey the word of Christ in all areas, but we fail to see the impossibility of doing so apart from the present and continuing grace of God through his word, by his spirit, 
among his people to be sustaining our obedience in life. Even if we do see our need for Christ to take away our sins, we don't recognize our present and active need for Christ to enable us to obey. The gospel, therefore, does not just announce the possibility of forgiveness of sins at the end of one's life or when standing before Christ's throne of judgment. No, we do need that forgiveness of sins, but that is only part of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel commands an obedience that is present and active and ever-continuing and ever-growing. Yes, there may be waxing and waning of a particular dimension of sin or obedience. However, the trajectory, as Paul says, is moving from glory to greater glory. Therefore, at this passage in Luke, Luke's gospel encourages us to recognize a radical claim and a radical interest that Jesus Christ claims among the disciples. Therefore, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must understand what following him requires of us. As I said at the beginning, he's either our master of all or he's not our master at all. You've heard it said that you've, if you've been in churches, you've heard that phrase, he's either Lord of all. But, but I just want to say maybe Lord has been too religiousized for you. He's either your master. He either calls all the shots or he calls none of the shots. To that end, I want to look at four aspects of today's passage. First, the call to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Then what it means to show mercy and to show grace the requirement, the commandment of Jesus Christ to withhold judgment and what that means and what it doesn't mean. And then finally, the absolute need for our obedience. Speaking to the disciples, Jesus is expounding here the law and the prophets. He is not creating a new law. And so when I titled this message, The Commandments of Jesus Christ, I do not mean to say that some say in the New Testament that the law has been set aside and Jesus gives us a new law. He does not give us a new commandment, as John's epistle says. I'm not writing a new commandment to you. I am writing a new one in a sense, but it really is an old commandment. Jesus here is applying the law. He's fulfilling it first through his life, and then he's applying it to his people, that they would see two things, their need for his active obedience and their need for his active grace moment by moment. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Notice that phrase, who hear. Jesus at another point said, take care how you listen. Do not presume that because you hear these words with your ears that your spirit is being changed by the words. In verse 28, it says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. At the very first teaching in this passage, we are confronted immediately by an impossibility of obedience apart from a transformed life. How can someone actually love their enemies? Emphasis on enemies. They're your enemy. Imagine wrestling in the middle of a war in trench warfare where the enemy has taken ground and has come into your trenches and you are fighting hand to hand. Now, I, I don't think Jesus is actually talking about just war. We don't have time to talk about just war today. But I want you to imagine the picture. Someone, you are in a life and death struggle with a person. And Jesus says, love your enemies. That's who enemies are. 
Enemies are people who want to end your life, who want to seek to destroy you. As Paul taught the Romans, love does no wrong to its neighbor. So how can Jesus say we must love our enemies when they're an enemy and love requires us to do no wrong to our enemies? To, in, to take that phrase and insert it into Jesus' sentence, he says, do no wrong to your enemies. What does he mean by this? Loving my enemy and further doing good to them requires a renunciation of my right to retaliate. What I mean by this has nothing to do with war. Again, we do not have time to talk about, but there's a great understanding of what the, the righteous use of war is. Throughout the Bible, God's people constantly engage in war. Jesus is not saying the Old Testament is full of errors and lies, and God's people didn't really understand what to do in coming into the land of Canaan. No, Jesus is saying something about relationships and the way that we interact with those who are our enemies, not with how we do war. Jesus here cannot be saying in this passage that those who obey their com these commandments earn grace before God, because as we'll see today, the, the grand theme this morning is that all of these commandments require persistent, constant, in this moment, divine grace to obey. That is to say that God's word must be so internalized in the heart of his people that if they are to obey these commands, they must be drawing upon the grace that he supplies through his precious promises. Unless I am constantly motivated by the word of God, as I've meditated on it before, I cannot love my enemies because loving my enemies requires me to believe something that his word tells me and I learn nowhere else, which is that God redeems the godly. Obeying these commands is only possible if one is radically convinced of God's justice and sovereignty. You cannot love your enemies if it matters to you to live, to survive by defeating your enemies or by not doing good to those who abuse you. One can only love their enemy if they've been changed first by the love of God. A man can only do good to those that hate him if he's first convinced that all things are done unto the Lord, and then only secondarily are they done to others. I can never bless someone who's cursing me unless I'm convinced radically that that blessing can transform them. The reason why is we would never want to bless evil if we thought that would aid them in their evil. Amen? We wouldn't buy things from people who are promulgating evil in society. Therefore, if we wish to bless those who curse us, we have to be convinced that that blessing, an act of the grace of God moving through us, can transform them. That's why Christians throughout the ages have always been engaged in, in public and social good, doing works of service to pagan nations or people who are far from Christ, giving without distinction. In my time in Salt Lake City, it was very interesting to me that certain things within the Mormon missions were only available for Mormon people. I thought that was a very telling distinction, that you had to convert to Mormonism before they would do certain social services for them. That's a completely a side point for another day. The point is, unless we believe that prayer is effective 
and that God can work within us the proper motivation, we can never pray for those who despitefully use us. Here's why. Prayer for someone else requires the entering in of my heart to ask for and mean for their good. When Jesus says to pray for those who despitefully use you or abuse you, he doesn't mean to just say, God, help those people. Uh, Amen. Let's move on to the next item in our prayer list. No, he means to enter in in travail as one who is desiring that God would actually answer the prayer. You cannot pray for someone who abuses you and actually mean it unless his grace is operating in your heart. This is why the book Total Forgiveness Experience, which we use at this church, is so, it, it focuses so strongly on truly entering into praying blessing upon those who've wronged you because it is the only way to obey Christ's command. You cannot forgive someone if you cannot pray for someone blessings and actually hope that those blessings would be answered. Jesus here is giving radical commands that at the very beginning of this passage show us we cannot obey these in ourselves. We cannot obey these unless we have been transformed by his grace and are being informed by his word in the moment. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to, one, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Christ teaches his disciples that they must be patient when injured and maligned by others. As Christians, we are never to take up private revenge and defend our honor by ourselves, but rather we must trust in God's sovereignty. The generosity and charity that's required of Christians is only possible if we understand that, as Jesus taught in Luke 12, 15, our lives do not consist in an abundance of possessions. One of the greatest aspects of becoming a Christian is deliverance from the idolatry of American consumer culture. If you do not know this now, brothers and sisters, you will not take anything with you. You must know that. You must know that because unless you are convinced of that and remember that, you will not be free to give. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says that God's promised to be with us. Therefore, we can say God has promised to be with us. We do not need to be lovers of money. Essentially, the idea is unless we have a true treasure which cannot be taken from us, we'll never get rid of our little earthly treasures voluntarily. You cannot be generous with someone who you know is scamming you unless you're convinced that that might be used by God's grace. Now, by this, I do not mean that any particular person, and I don't think Jesus intends, that if we have knowledge that a person's abusing those things, that we should aid their evil. However, when people come and ask for food and ask for help and ask for money or relief, the Christian must, must obey. A person has come to my house a number of times who I have begun to deeply love. And this man is broken and ruined by his sin. He, he has lived a life, a profligate life. He is the prodigal. And yet he comes to my house and wants work. And he wants the most menial work in just exchange for either cash or food. 
And at first, I was very cold. I was like, should I do this? Should I be involved with this person? And over time, the Lord has softened me. He has reminded me, what do you have that you've not been given? And over and over again, this man has come to my house. And one day, out of nowhere, we've never talked about anything about the faith. He asks me, are you a pastor? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, God was setting me up. And we, begun to, we began to talk about the faith, and, and maybe perhaps the Lord will grant repentance. I don't know, and I can't grant repentance anyway. What I can do is give to everyone who asks of me, according to Jesus' commandment. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Imagine, for example, you are in great need of food or finances or clothing or a place to live. I believe that Jesus is talking about these sorts of things. But the thing that's interesting, as we've applied it here momentarily to homelessness or giving or, or poverty or doing works of charity, what Jesus says in verse 31 is not qualified to only works of service or works of mercy. Jesus commands, therefore, his followers to consider what righteousness requires in all of their dealings with others. Essentially, what this passage says is that the Christian does not wait to be until he is treated well in order to start treating others well. In Mark 12, 33, the scribe repeats to Jesus what the sum and substance of the law is. To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then it says, and when Jesus had seen that he answered wisely. You know, Jesus didn't correct that. The scope of this command to love others or to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule, the scope of that command is never qualified or limited. What does this mean? Have you ever been misunderstood? Would you want someone who misunderstands you to come and ask you to clarify before doubting or before speculating? Yes, Therefore, if you possibly have misunderstood someone else, you should go to them first and clarify with them, what what did you mean by that? Has someone ever sinned against you in a grievous way to the point where you lose sleep over remembering what they've done? Would you, if you were them, want want yourself to forgive them? Absolutely. You have to live your entire life as a disciple of Christ working out what it means to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus then demonstrates the true and visible nature of obedience to his commandments. What I I take him to be saying in these verses is that our actions and our deeds must match an internal disposition. What do I mean by that? I mean the things that happen on the outside of my life must match that which is going on on the inside of my life. My disposition, my emotions toward someone must match what I do to them and for them, what I do in my relationship with them. Here's what I think that means. You can't give away your things grumbling in your heart. Boy, I wish we didn't have this law. Malachi actually takes the nation of Israel to task for this, saying, oh, We can't wait until the Sabbath is over. This is what Jesus is saying to his people. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus here must not be saying that you must obey these commandments in order to earn righteousness because he already distinguishes between the sons of God and those who are called, as he calls them, sinners. He says that there's a difference between sinners and those who've been redeemed and transformed by God's love. Over and over, Jesus contrasts the nature of what sinners do and what the children of God do. And in so doing, he actually shows the nature of what real charity and generosity and almsgiving are. Sinners can reciprocate in love. By that, we don't mean they're actually loving, but they return the favor. They reciprocate. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Quid pro quo. But here, Jesus is saying that a gift cannot truly be a gift if return payment is expected. This is so important to remember come Christmas time. I want you to imagine if you knew that as you brought these 20 or 30, 10, 5, however many gifts you're bringing, that no one was going to get you anything that year, would you be moved? Would you be moved in your generosity? You ought not to be. But in Christmas, especially in families, the expectation of return gifts is just kind of there. But what Jesus is saying is not just a comment about Christmas. He's saying that this is what real love is. You cannot love someone expecting them to love you back and have that be your motivation for loving them. Lending is not generous if it takes place in the context of return. Over and over again, Jesus is appealing to us that we should be seeking our own interests in their interest. I don't mean financial interest. I mean that we should be desiring our interest in the interest of others because he says over and over again, what credit is that to you? What good is that to you? He's implying that you should be concerned about benefiting from your good works. How do we do that? He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Look closely, brothers and sisters, the paradox of Christian obedience, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. There are times in your Bible where you should just pause while you're reading and saying, hmm, And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus is summarizing his teaching, this entire section, as commands which express the nature of the Father through our actions. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be merciful, for your heavenly Father is merciful. By giving to those who could never repay, we live out in a picture, a living parable, if you will, what God did in the reality of sending Jesus Christ. How will we be demonstrated as sons of the Most High? We will be demonstrated, not become sons of the Most High, we will be demonstrated as sons of the Most High by reminding the world through our actions that the Most High gave His Son to wretched and ruined sinners who were destitute with nothing to offer Him in return. 
That is the heart and sum of the gospel. The Father displayed His grace by giving the gift of His Son to wretched and ruined sinners who have nothing to return to Him. Your obedience, Christian, does not return the favor to God. Rather, it is flowing from an expression of being transformed by His love so that you can transform the world around you. I want you to consider the mercy of the Father. Be merciful, for your heavenly Father is merciful. Consider the mercy of the Father, not just generally in sending the Son, but specifically in your life, the hundreds of days which you have sinned against Him and He has overlooked, the thousands of transgressions and idols that you have formed and He has simply passed over them, looking to the blood of His Son and not considering you outside that wonderful fount of purifying, atoning blood. The Father has been so merciful to you in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you have been transformed by that mercy, be merciful to others. Jesus is not saying that you become sons of God, rather that you are demonstrated as sons of God. This is why I say you must have been loved by God in, other, in order to love others. Jesus then commands his disciples to withhold judgment, but instead forgive In verse 37, it reads, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. I want you to imagine a bag of grain here. Good measure. Not a a short cup, a full cup. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. I spent about 20 minutes reading John Gill on the Hebrew midrash of what this means. They have a a very important rule when they are giving out the shekel of the temple versus the, the regular common shekel. The shekel of the temple is different for a holy use, but they had laws about just weights and and measures. And in fact, a great amount of the minor prophets and the major prophets are taking Israel to task for having two sets of weights. If you ever want to think about the evil of, of what Israel was going on, they had to have two sets of weights at the market that day and do some sort of sleight of hand so that they, they don't get cheated. But what they, what they mean by this is that when you were buying grain or when you were buying any dry good, that you would be given a, a burlap sack or some sort of container. And here Jesus is saying that you're going to get exact. If you paid for a cup, you're going to get a cup. If you paid for a gallon or a bushel, you're going to get that bushel. But here, it's not just going to settle and we're going to level it by weight. No, we're going to do it by volume and we're going to push all the grains so we can get as much grain in this bushel as possible. And then once we do that, even though it's a bushel and, and we would cut it off at the top, we're going to pour some more onto the top so that as you're carrying it, it's kind of spilling as you're leaving with your bushel. That's what Jesus is saying to those who are merciful and forgiving and judge not and condemn not. He's saying, if you give grace to other people like this, then you will receive grace in this manner. This oft-quoted command of Christ is one of the most twisted scriptures in our culture. 
How often have you been witnessing to someone or spending time on Facebook and someone says, don't judge, brother. You know, if you claim to be a Christian, Jesus said, don't judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. However, Jesus is not teaching in these verses that one cannot make any moral evaluations of someone's conduct. Because Jesus himself in John 7, 24 says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So this cannot mean to not make moral evaluations, but rather what it means is to extend grace to someone else as far as is possible. There is a limit to grace, in a sense, in human relationships, in social settings, where we cannot sustain being merciful or being gracious. There must be a judgment. There must either be church discipline or there must be discipline, corporally speaking, with with children, or there must be discipline in a school by suspending or expelling. There must be discipline. However, we ought to be as gracious as we can be. In Gill's commentary on this passage, he says that we ought not condemn others for every single offense in practice or because they differ in minor principles lest you should be treated in like manner by others, and especially lest you should fall under the righteous censure, judgment, and condemnation of God. You see, a heart that is presuming to judge others constantly has not escaped the judgment of God. It is, as Jesus says, the wrath of God is abiding on that person. Jesus here is saying, judge with right judgment. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. In verse 39, he said, he also told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. This parable illustrates the folly of thinking that righteousness can come before obedience or that righteousness begets, uh, excuse me, obedience begets righteousness. Just as a blind person cannot find his way, a man must be taught by Christ before he can see clearly to obey the words of Christ. You see, it's only the redeemed and transformed heart that can even have the wisdom to know what to do in these situations. This is the aim of Christ's next proverb. Christ is the master. He is, I want you to think of the master as the one who is the teacher, the one who is conquered the martial art or the one who is mastered is the professor of the body of knowledge. Jesus is the way himself. He is in his own earthly life is the perfect expression of the obedience of what his teachings entail. And so therefore, as his disciples, we ought to be primarily focused on our own obedience rather than worrying about our neighbor's. There are people in the church who have been given oversight over the congregation. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, one of the greatest things to keep in tension is the balance between oversight of others and looking to our own hearts. Whoever has served as an elder or done any work in a church, you know a great temptation will be to be caught up with others' transgressions and not look at your own heart. And yet, Jesus warns his people to concern themselves first with themselves and then look at their neighbors, as he is about to explain in this next parable. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, 
in the way that we use the word log in English, we do not mean that a, a log is a stick under about two inches in diameter. Even then, really, logs kind of only start going to be logs when they're about four inches thick. How big's your eyeball? It's about an inch wide, maybe half an inch tall. And the log, if it is an English log, which I think the translators chose the right word, that log is very big. Can you see past that log? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus' parable shows the folly of taking an issue with a small sin in one's neighbor while ignoring massive sins which affect oneself. To be sure, there is a difference in sins. All sins are transgressions against the Almighty. All sins are worthy of damnation. However, not all sins are equally grievous to yourself and to others. Paul makes a distinction between sins that are committed sexually as being sins against your own body versus sins that are externally committed. There are differences in the nature of sin, excuse me, the effects of sin, not the nature of sin. Nevertheless, Jesus makes a distinguishing in even this parable. He says your brother has a smote or a, a, a excuse me, a moat, you know, a tiny little speck. And this speck regards something which, to be sure, is a very real hindrance to your brother, but it is tolerable for a moment. I want to illustrate a counterpoint here. I was, this was all the way back at my time of Resource Interactive. Uh, years ago, I used to work in Columbus, and I was about ready to drive home that night when I was sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden, I felt something enter my eye, and it was an eyelash. And brothers and sisters, it took me two hours to get the eyelash out of my eye, and it was crippling. I was under such pain that I thought about calling a taxi to get me home. And I was, I, with one eye, I Google searched how to remove an eyelash. It was not, it was an uncommon moment. Nevertheless, if anyone's done carpentry or done some sort of cleaning of your house, you can get dust or grass in your eye and still perform your function. Occasionally, it will move to a place that brings you to your knees. However, what Jesus is saying, for you personally, the issue is not your brother's speck. It's your log. The log that is in one's eye is of greater importance and urgency. I think this is one of the most exquisite images which Christ employs. The log not only causes functional blindness, but itself is a metaphor for preoccupation with sins of others and ignorance of self. You see, the person who has the log in his eye is guilty of worrying about others. The log itself is a picture of and a manifestation of his tendency. To take out the log primarily means that he needs to change in orientation. A modern analog of this is that the masks which come down when an airplane loses cabin pressure. If you've ever been on a flight, you know the, what they tell you, at least in America, at the beginning of the flight. They explain, if we lose cabin pressure, masks will come down from the ceiling. And if you're traveling with children, you first put on your mask before helping your children with theirs. Why? Because if you don't get your mask on, you'll pass out while helping them. That's the modern analog to the, the, the smote or the, the, the little speck and the, and the log. 
Once you've taken out the log out of your eye, then help your brother. You see, this commandment, this parable, cannot be understood as commanding that we never evaluate each other, we never help each other, we never encourage. No, it rather says, deal with your house before you deal with others. Imagine this, would you trust your eyes to a blind optometrist? You, you would never do it, no matter what accessibility features they might have. Because the nature of correcting vision, one has to see to be able to correct vision. Jesus then concretely shows the nature of obedience, that one's deeds are evidence either of reality with God or hypocrisy before God. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Trees which are truly good bear good fruit, and those which are bad only bear bad fruit. While Jesus did not elaborate on this parable, I think it would be helpful to elaborate on this parable. One, to give assurance to those who are really good trees who occasionally bear bad fruit. The reason I am going here is because Jesus drew from nature in this expression. Jesus loved the scriptures, and here himself is alluding back to the pattern in Genesis 1. In verse 12, it says that trees are bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. We know from nature that occasionally a few pieces of fruit on a tree can be damaged. You can malign some fruit without maligning the rest of the tree. And by extension, I, true, I am intending to say that indeed a true good tree, a real believer, can occasionally bear good, uh, excuse me, bad fruit. But it is bad fruit by the abuse from the enemy. It is not bad because of the source. Jesus, I take him to be saying, is saying that no tree that is good bears only bad fruit. In 1 John 3, 9, John's referring also to Genesis 1, 12. He says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God's seed is God's word, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this parable. The one who is good brings forth out of his heart that which is good that he has stored up. And the psalmist told us that in order to prevent himself from sinning, he would treasure and store up God's word in his heart. And yet we also know that unbelievers can seem to do good works. In fact, this is a common claim against Christianity, is the possibility of doing good deeds apart from Christ. But again, to use an imagery, who in here has not been deceived by an early picked peach? I hate rotten peaches. I hate them so much, I take them back to the store. I used to throw them in the trash. What happens with a rotten peach is it looks beautiful. I spent an hour reading on the New York Times and another website about why peaches can arrive at a store and be terrible. It's because they're picked too early 
or they come from trees that ought to be replaced. The peach growers have engineered the peaches so that they will look red. But when they're picked too early, they have a greenness underneath the red. You see, unbelievers can indeed do quote-unquote good deeds, but they're not truly good. They're appealing to the eye, but underneath there's no savor, there's no sweetness, there's nothing to be desired in an early-picked peach. The fruit looks good, but at its core, it's evil. It's done for self. It's not done for the glory of God. Bare trees can bear good-looking fruit, but it is not done according to faith, and it's not done for the glory of God, and therefore it is not good fruit at all. Jesus warns those who make a false pretense of following him without obeying what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. If you claim to follow Christ, you should be seeking to obey all of his words in all of life. Doubtless, this will take your whole life to perfect It cannot be accomplished in a day. Nevertheless, though it will take our whole lives to perfect, we should not give any quarter or room for sin in our lives. We should repent of disobedience, and we should press on to maturity today. You must recognize in this parable that you are currently building the house of your life. Every day you are adding brick by brick to the walls and to the structure of your, of your solical life, your life before God. You're furring out the windows. You're bringing in the joists. You're putting down flooring. You're putting in carpet. Every single day you are building either on the foundation of Jesus Christ or not. And that work will be tested, whether by the storms of life or by that final day of his return. If you do not seek refuge in Christ, understand that a great ruin is coming to your house. Hearing Christ's words in an external fashion, but not believing them and doing them, is like trusting in dirt to be an immovable concrete foundation. I want you to imagine these words of Jesus, building a house of $100,000 and you put it on a foundation of sand or mud. And then a three-day rain comes. Is that house going to stand? No, it's going to be taken away by the storms of life. As those who seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ, my call to you this morning is to build your life upon the rock of his love for us. Don't just build your rock upon the obedience of doing what he says, but rather see, as we've been seeing this whole morning, that all of these commands require us to be transformed by his love so that his love would transform others through us. Build your life upon his word and knowing that he has given his life for you so that you might fulfill his word from your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would call us up to maturity, that in all of our dealings with others, we might perfectly express that you are a merciful, 
kind God, that you are full of grace, that you love and you delight in forgiveness, that you are kind to the sinner and the saint alike, that you shower your grace upon all people who live in this world. We pray that you would give us the sort of generosity of spirit that only comes from knowing that, our, that you are our true treasure and that we might be able to be an expression of Jesus Christ to everyone who we meet. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.